Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Selective Hearing. I am your host, Julie DeMar, and this week I have another special guest with me. I have Coach Reed Maltby, and we will be discussing his book, The Spartan Mindset, and we will also be having a very, very beautiful conversation about the power that our words possess. So before we get started, I would love to give Coach Reed the opportunity to introduce himself and tell all of us some things about you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. Uh, so obviously I'm Coach Reed. Uh, I have the name nickname Coach. It was a term of endearment because it's what I always used for my favorite coaches. And then I ended up the first time I was called it by players. I, I loved it so much. It stuck. My, my kids even called me it because I just, it, I feel a bit more connected to people. Uh, I was a coach for for 30 years. Uh, started at age 16. Uh, soccer was my sport. Uh, at 16 to learn to coach was such a unique perspective for me because not only was I playing, but I was also coaching. So I was seeing the game from both sides of the ball. So I understood what it felt like to be coached by somebody and then flip over. And now I'm on the sideline coaching others. So I sort of saw those two perspectives and it changed the way I interacted with my athletes, knowing what they were experiencing basically in real time, because I was going through it every day too. I have two masters, one in sports psychology and one in early childhood education, which gives me an interesting perspective on uh, the pedagogy behind coaching, uh, communication patterns that we use and how the brain is developing alongside of the body. Because a lot of times we focus on those outcomes, the body, the, the physical aspect of the game, but you know, the hardware only runs as good as the software. So I've always looked at the game from how is the mind working during this, this process? How are athletes performing? In 2015, I did a TEDx on the power of a coach's words that changed the game for me. It put me into an area where I actually got an opportunity to work with other coaches, organizations, anywhere from small high schools all the way up to Olympic governing bodies, working with them on how they were setting up the coaching environments, how they were communicating with athletes and how they were uh, focusing on uh, use of the brain or, or uh, mental skills for athletes to perform at peak levels. So that's, that's what I do now as I work with uh, coaches, athletes, organizations, I've branched out now with my new book, anybody in a high performance, high stress environment. I like to work with organizations that want to craft better, better environments. So you weren't one of those coaches that was on the sideline screaming his head off and like <laughs> during the game or were you? Uh, I'd have to say I was, I had my days. You, I think you learn as you go. And so I had some experiences where I was that coach. I, I was never really nasty to my players, but I would lose my temper regarding a bad call or, or just get excited about the game. I was a very passionate coach. So I was constantly, they called me the tiger because I would stalk the sidelines back and <laughs> forth. Uh, but it took years and years of, of either seeing others do it differently or, or having mentors help me or making my own mistakes and realizing that's not how I want to be. So yeah, I was, I was a vocal coach, but I learned early on that I had to be positive as a coach. I'm not a sports fan. I'll just put that out there right away. Like I don't watch sports, but my husband is like a diehard sports fan, basketball specifically. He's a state fan. He loves Izzo. So I know all of these things because of him standing in front of the TV clapping and, and yelling and stuff like that. So there's times where I come in and I'll like catch him watching the game and I'll see the coaches like on the sideline, just like, Rah! and I was like, that has to be like a very stressful position to be in because you're for an extended period of time, your emotions are running high for probably so many different reasons. And my question to you would be when you first started, Versus because you say you have 30 years in. So when you first started to when you were wrapping up your career, what were some of those transitional periods in your career that helped you 
understand the importance of communicating with your players and the people around you to, in a way that would benefit them and help them remain confident? Sure. I'd say the first transitional period was when I got started to get do my master's work in sports psychology. I started to understand the impact that we had on the brain in those high stress situations. So I learned very quickly that the main processes of the brain shut down during high stress. And so if you add to it by screaming at somebody, if you're a negative, then you're just shutting down the processing, the, the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, prefrontal lobe of the brain. You're shutting down that analytical area where they can think and process and actually commit to skills. And you're activating the fear center, the amygdala, the brainstem areas. So if those are in charge, kids can't think straight. People can't actually perform at peak because you're interrupting that brain processing. So to learn that brain body connection at a younger age, I was in my twenties, helped change the way I interact with my athletes. I figured out pretty quickly that yeah, I'm still a very passionate coach, but there were times that you just needed to calm down and speak in a more level voice because it helped them calm down. I'd say another big transitional period for me was the, the more I worked with younger players and realized the impact I had as a larger adult. So I'm a foot taller than them and I'm a hundred pounds heavier than them. So there's already a fear there and I'm standing over them. So if I'm talking to them and I'm talking to them in any kind of voice other than that, that calm, respectful, or even uh, level voice, Tone, then it's going to affect how those kids interact with me. It's going to scare them or they're not going to want to be a, a part of my world. So working in early childhood development, I learned early on a couple things was eye contact, get down to their level, change my voice volume to match their volume, uh, change my tone and pitch so that they see it as, as more of a inviting, encouraging coach rather than a negative coach. And those were huge moments in my career because I'm still a very animated, passion, passionate person, but I understood that there were certain moments where I just had to change the way I was delivering what I was saying to my kids to eliminate any negative impacts on the brains. So there's a reason why I asked you that. Last night when I was doing more research to see if there was anything else that I could add to our discussion today, I found this and I want to read it to you. It's about you. It's about your book. And it says, the Spartan mindset is a must read for any coach, teacher, or parent out there that wants to make a difference in a child's life. What we say and how we say it affects our brains in more ways than we realize. And if we're not careful, we can build or destroy the people around us. If you know Coach Reed, you'll hear him in every word of his book. The passion and love he has for words and teaching comes through in every line and page. Oh, I love it. Who, who's, who said that? <laughs> this was written by Joel Franco, founder of Chesapeake Film and Director where our children play. I love Joel. So he's got a phenomenal documentary he's working on that's all about how we, how coaching has turned into this results oriented, high level, high pressure stakes, high stakes game for very young players. And he wants to change that and go back to that, that root core. But it's funny you say that quote, because while I was talking to you about those, those seminal moments in my career, I was thinking about a quote from Frederick Douglass. It's better to build strong children than to repair broken adults. I think he said broken men, but broken adults. And that that was one of the things that stuck with me when I was in early childhood development was uh, doing my research. And that was that we're creating generations of broken children or broken human beings when we are negative with them. It's been proven that chronic verbal abuse is as bad as chronic physical abuse. It causes 
negative impacts on the brain. So there's legitimately brain damage happening when we're screaming at children. So we're creating entire generations of broken people when we in the classrooms or at home or in on sporting fields, we're screaming at them. We're we're demanding or, or demeaning towards them and, and excluding them from situations, right? That's very d damaging to the brain. And so I'd rather approach children in a way that I'm going to build up every kid. Listen, in my career, how many kids am I going to actually turn into pro athletes, right? That was always the thought through my head is like, what, 1% of these kids, maybe one out of the hundreds of kids I'll see will be a professional athlete. So that can't be my end game. But it, it, most of the time we'll focus on that 1%. Like that's my goal as a coach is my 1%. I'm going to get as many to as I can to college and to pro. And so we eliminate the other kids from our thought process and we focus on just that one or 2%, right? The problem is, is those other 99% go on to be something amazing in life. So my thought as a coach is why am I not pouring positivity and excellence into every one of those children so that I'm building a generation of strong adults. And when they go on to be whatever it is they choose to be in life, they're amazing human beings because they had these mentors who poured into them, gave them life skills, taught them values, uh, mentored, uh, uh, gave them a role model to follow that they wanted to be like so that they went on and did the same thing. I'd rather have that than one or two pro athletes. So I can say, I created that athlete, but in the process, I never gave those other 99% any chance ever to be successful at anything because I never poured into them with love. This is why I feel like your book, it can apply to, and that's why I'm going to get into why when I read that last night, why I had such an emotional response. So a lot of my listeners know that I often talk about the importance of conscious parenting, gentle parenting, um, parenting your children in a way where you're more aware of your actions towards them so that you're not creating a situation where your child is not confident and doesn't learn certain social skills, doesn't learn certain emotional skills. So then when they become adults, like you said, they have to unlearn certain behaviors and they have to go to therapy or coaching and things like that in order to heal from trauma. Now, of course, we're not going to be parent and we, I mean, perfect parents and we make mistakes and things like that along the way, but it's important to be, even in those moments of imperfection, mindful of that, aware of that and know how to correct yourself and, and set that example for your children so that when they get older and they, you know, go off course, they understand how to correct themselves so that they're not inflicting trauma on the next human being. So I always talk about that and I talk about that and I'm very open about me being a child that grew up in a dysfunctional environment and having to, when I became a parent, unlearn a lot of trauma, heal from a lot of trauma in order to, I have two boys, ages two and four. So in order to make sure that I give them the best chance ever, you know, reading that, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait for tomorrow because this can apply to not just coaches, but parents, teachers, anyone that comes in contact with anyone, especially children, so that they can be that positive influence in that child's life to help give them the best opportunity possible. Because some children, like when I was in school, so I was coming to school from a household that was chaotic. So I got to school, I had behavioral issues. Well, every teacher that looked at me, no one thought past, well, what is going on with this kid? You know, it was just automatically go to detention, go to suspension. Um, we're, we're considering putting her in alternative 
schools where we send all the kids that we don't want to deal with. In that, all that was doing was continuing to crush my self-esteem. All they did was add to what was already going on at home. So becoming an adult and, you know, jumping on this platform and bringing awareness to things like this, I was like, I I, I was kind of um fanning out a little bit last night after going through your stuff. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so dope because <laughs> we're going to be able to point out so many different things that are going to be helpful and hopefully encouraging to any listener out there that is going through something similar or has experienced something like this or may come in contact with that child or that person that is kind of on a crash course right now and you may be that point of contact that can turn everything around for that person thank you for being here because it's conversations like this like they just light me up because i'm like for so long i i was on this podcast solo talking about different things like this but it means a lot to be able to bring in people, especially people that have a lot of experience, such as yourself, to bring in people to offer that additional perspective and to give more insight on the subject. So thank you, coach. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> You're uh, welcome. Yeah, it, I was a kindergarten teacher. Uh, one year and I would have been longer probably, but the soccer field called me back. It was one of those where I just, I understood after a year that as much as I loved it, it I wasn't bringing as much joy to it. it. It wasn't a fit, you know, and I wanted to be back on the field and I was given the opportunity to work full time with athletes. And that felt like that was the place to be. But while I was a kindergarten teacher, I learned some of those important lessons you're talking about. I understood that kids' behavior wasn't just random, that they weren't choosing to be nasty towards you, choosing, kids aren't that way. They're not choosing to do these things. They're mis, and now that I've met Jane Nelson from Positive Discipline, I understand those are misunderstood goals. Children do things because they're acting out for attention or they need help, it's a cry for help, or, or they're not they're not feeling welcome, love, or secure. And so they do these things because it's a defense mechanism. So you're showing up already chaotic and frazzled at school. And so you're either defending yourself by acting that way to, to keep people at bay so they don't hurt you, or it's a, I, I, I need somebody to actually take some time and be patient with me. And so while I was in kindergarten, under, starting to understand that about children and then, and then having some students come into my room on a daily basis that, wow, they touched buttons. <laughs> and, and I learned very quickly, oh my gosh, of all the kids in my classroom, I had 50 kids, 25 in the morning, 25 in the evening. Of all the kids in my classroom, it may be this one here who presses the most of my buttons that needs me the most because he or she is screaming out for something. And I'd never, as a coach, gotten that. I, I knew most of the parents can coaching and stuff, but I never went beyond knowing the parents at practice, which were different people when we're in front of the teachers and coaches. But being in the classroom, seeing these kids day in, day out, and being around them enough that they were opening up to me, I started to figure out what was happening at home with some of these kids. And it may not be bad, but there were kids that were coming to school that were looking for that, that safety, that comfort, that security, or just one adult, one adult to look them in the eyes just once in their life and say, it's okay got you on this one and what a difference that can make like that's so much more powerful than again i don't care if i ever had a rocket science come scientist come out of my classroom or a pro athlete come off my field but to know that every kid left my field or classroom knowing that one adult in their life loved them may be the difference in how their world transpires after that it really can't i went through like a just how many teachers were actually there i even ran track for like five minutes everyone just kind of gave up you know, like she's a lost cause, turn her loose, you know? And I was like, what if there was one person that sat down and said, hey, what's going on? What a difference that could have made. Like, are you okay? Why do you act that way? 
So I keep that in mind with everything, even um, growing and in, in, in becoming a mother myself. Like if I see my kids doing something, hey, what's going on? What happened? And allowing them, even though they're really young, they can't like really communicate like as articulate as we would, but it, just giving them the time and the space to feel comfortable enough to know that they can do that. I know it'll make a big difference when they're older. So that brings me into how the things that we say and the things that we do and the way that we approach things, how that can create positive and negative dialogue within us. So I kind of want to discuss that with you today. And I want to hear your perspective and your opinion regarding positive and negative self-talk and how you address that in your book. I'm a big believer that we have three voices. We've got an exterior public voice that everybody hears. It's, it's the voice we all use. We've got this secondary voice that's this private, only with those we trust the most voice that we'll use. So for instance, I have I have issues that I may only bring up in front of my wife. Like, hey, honey, do I look okay tonight? You know, is my hair okay? It's like, there are things that there are insecurities or there's a voice I'll only use around her. And then there's this interior voice that nobody hears. Nobody but us, right? And that's the voice that usually is the most powerful. And the problem is, is when we get into these negative self-talk patterns, that's the meanest voice. So a lot of times what's happening with people around us is we'll see somebody having a bad day and we, we hear it all the time. Oh, we don't know the baggage that somebody's carrying, but we also don't know the voice that they're using with themselves. Somebody may be having the worst day on the planet and acting out, but nobody's taking the time to ask them what's going on with you. How are you feeling with adults, right? So we, we do this with adults. So imagine children have this same voice and we're shaping that voice. So so as an adult, a lot of times that voice has been pretty much created to a very significant level. Like I can alter that voice a lot, but that voice has really got life now. But as a child, we're forming that voice. So if the adults and the people in our world that we trust, even other children, the people in our world that we trust, if their talk to us is positive, then they're helping shape that that interior private voice in a much more positive way. If they're encouraging, then that voice becomes encouraging. If they are forgiving with mistakes, then that voice becomes forgiving. So a child makes a mistake and they've got that positive voice because people forward positively into it. it. That voice may say, it's okay, Reed. <laughs> we'll get it next time. <laughs> it's okay. Or everybody's not laughing at you, Reed. It's just a mistake. But if we've had negative experiences and they forward into that voice, then that voice becomes very negative. Oh my gosh, Reed. You're such an idiot. All these people think you're the dumbest person on the planet because you just made that mistake. You can never make that mistake again, Reed. Never do that again. What is wrong with you, Reed? And that's the voice that we carry. So when you talk about that, how do we shape that voice is we actually, when we speak to people that trust us, our voice can potentially become their voice. So as a leader, as an adult, as a parent, as anybody that's interacting with the children around us, what kind of voice are we using with those people to help them? It doesn't mean that we can't hold people accountable. There's a, there's, I believe that there's a, there's a way to be demanding of people that, that we demand excellence out of them without demeaning them. I can expect excellence. I can set standards for people and I can hold them accountable to the standards, even the youngest children, like you said, and I'm blown away. I mean, two and four, trust me, I was not, <laughs> it took me much longer with my children to learn that exactly what you were talking about. Like, Hey, what's going on? Wait a minute. Let's take a step back. Let's calm down. What's going on? That if we take that time with people, that what a difference it can make in their lives. I can still hold my children accountable for their behaviors, but now I know why they did what they did. Hey, 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 I see you're having a bad day. Can you tell me about it? Oh, I'm this, this, and this. Is that why you, you know, why did you, why did you break the vase? I was so mad. I hit the table and it fell. Now I understand. Now I can talk to my kid about 
okay, what's a better way to display our anger? What's a different, and even with the youngest kids, you can go through those. It might be a different conversation. I might not, not talk in the same words, might not as be sound as sophisticated, but I can still get them to understand we don't hit things when we're mad. <laughs> we don't break things when we're mad. And you were mad. That's what you were hit. You know, so anyway, I, I digress a little bit. What we do and say does shape that internal voice. And we have an opportunity to take a step back and help people shape their own voice if we have those meaningful conversations. An example I use, because my four-year-old likes a lot of time. He he requires a lot of time with you. He's very huggy and he's he's that kind of kid. And I recognize that in him. But obviously I have a younger child as well who requires a lot of attention just because he's the baby. So there was a time where my house was like, wow, because my two, <laughs> I had my, my two-year-old, my four-year-old was two at the time. So he was like, I'm the only child getting all this attention. Where'd this baby come from? And he had like a hard time adjusting to being a big brother. And one day he was just, he told me like, I don't want to be a big brother. I don't want a baby here anymore. Take it back. And I was like, that's why he's having tantrums. That's why he's throwing things. That's why, you know, it's so, the response is so big. I need to carve out time with him so that he can feel special and so that he can have the attention that he sees the baby getting. But he didn't, he didn't know how to express that to me. So it was my job to figure it out and help him work through it. That was a huge thing for me too. <laughs> like really, really something huge for me to learn and, and go through all these different processes and I'm learning on the job and it's always trial and error and me apologizing for things and like, okay, mommy's gonna get it right. We're gonna get it together. But I just feel like even making that effort makes a difference. That leads me to the effects of our actions and our dialogue and things like that. The, the things, the actions we take, the, the words we choose to use, they have great impact. And a lot of people, oh, words, you know, sticks and stones, words don't matter. And I always say they do. If anything, they have just as much impact as physically balling up your fist and driving it straight through someone's head. Like it, it hurts. And so I feel like even words, cause they stick with you. Like you can smack my face and it'll heal in a couple days, but you can say some things to me that I can potentially carry throughout the rest of my life. So I would like you to kind of talk about, you know, some causes and effects just based on your experience, based on your book. So a phrase comes to mind, you're a big brute. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I was cut from a team and that was the excuse. You're a big brute. And it was because I was almost, I was about 5'8 at the time. I was very big. As a sixth, seventh and eighth grader, I was 5'8 and people were like, oh my gosh, get get him in the volleyball and basketball and the sports where you can use his height. I'm still 5'8. I just grew faster than the other kids. But because of that, I was at trials and I was also, I was also a November birthday. So I was usually one of the oldest kids at trials. I was that in the cutoffs for the way of uh, school was, I went to school a year older than everybody because my parents held me back a year. And in sports, I ended up lumped in with, they usually say in baseball like this, the early birthdays that are the, the oldest and more developed. Well, I got lucky. I was in a way, I was lumped in a way that I was playing with kids younger than me. So I was bigger just because I was, you know, a November birthday. And I was trying out with kids that were smaller than me and I, I got called a big brute. So that's 11 or 12 years old. I'm 49 years old. I still remember the phrase. That that phrase sticks with me to this day. I don't remember the exact spot. I don't even remember the the, the, the facial features of the coach who said it. I don't even, I remember one other kid that tried out with me at the time. So all the physical aspects have melted away. I don't remember what the tryout was like, but I do remember those words. I used to always say the sticks and stones, and, but words will never hurt me thing until I started. That, that phrase always stuck with me. So I started really looking at the way coaches were talking talking to players and the way they were interacting and the, the effects different words had. And as I did the research for my TEDx, because that was really what 
I started to notice was words matter. Like to these children, the things we do and say really do matter. And I tell the story of the coach who I saw said, I believe in you to a kid. And I thought, what a powerful word to say to a kid. So as I'm doing the research, that's when I discovered the work by Mark Robert Waldman, who says the verbal chronic abuse can cause brain damage, that words actually do matter, that it's not true about the sticks and stones and words can't hurt you, that if somebody is regularly negative to a child, if somebody is regularly saying hurtful, demeaning, exclusive things that exclude children from love or group activities or whatever it is, that if they say them and deliver them in a, in a negative way, that they're they're causing damage to the brain. I mean, obviously it'd have to be chronic. Even those negative words once or twice, they'll still stick with you. They're ghosts, they're echoes. They're echoes that we carry through. And so me being called a big brute and being cut and me thinking that that's the reason I was cut, what kind of impact does that have on me? Well, uh, in those quiet moments when I have a chance to listen to that private internal voice, that's what the voice repeats back to me. So I may not have the chronic verbal abuse damage caused by that coach, but I had a phrase I could use with myself that demeaned myself in those moments. Big game coming up. Oh, you're just a big brute who doesn't know how to play soccer, Reed. You know, <laughs> gain a little weight in my 40s. Oh, you're just a big brute, Reed. Like, that's becomes the voice. And I, where did I learn that? I learned that from an adult I trusted in my life who maybe if they changed the word slightly, wouldn't have had as much of an impact on how I thought or saw myself. Now, I, I, I'm caveat, I'm not saying that that coach did any damage or anything like that. It was a passing phrase and I've done it too. We've all done it, but it makes you think about every word matters. The words that we cast off that we think don't really matter somebody heard them somebody they made an impact on somebody so if we're much more intentional with our words so my angelou's right sometimes you don't actually remember the words but you remember the way people made you feel so we as a person may not remember all the words we've used in a conversation with somebody but we also don't can't guarantee which words they will remember so if i think i have a five minute conversation and i use one positive phrase but in that conversation i use three negative phrases i've given that child an opportunity to choose one of those three negative phrases over that positive phrase. And I can't pick and choose for that child. So if I don't use my words wisely, they may choose a phrase I didn't want them to carry with them. I may wanted the kid to say, I love you so much, but you're bad, you're mean, you're whatever, you're what, and yeah. they're not going to listen to the I love you so much. They've decided to hear something else that I said. And like Maya said, that what what they decided to hear is was is how it's going to make them feel. So if I'm intentional, and every word I use is positive. Every interaction I have with children is building them up. Then I can at least guarantee that to take away something positive. I don't remember which phrases they'll remember, but the one they will will be positive. I agree. And there's no perfection here. We all, you know, fall short at times. And I like to all, always, you know, let the audience know that when we're having these kind of conversations is there will be times when you fall short, but it's what you do during those times that I feel like defines your character. Do you apologize? Do you take accountability? Those are the type of things that also, like I said earlier in the show, help shape us and the people around us when we put those kind of intentions behind our action. It's it's very important for you to be accountable and you to be genuine in your apologies when you do have those moments where you take the wrong approach or you, you don't use the best words because that also helps with the relationship with the person you're interacting with. That also helps them understand that you care and it's okay to continue to trust you. So I just have to always put that out there too because it's like, hey, you know, like there's no, there's no perfection. My favorite thing is always to say, there's no perfection to be found here. You know, we're all, we're all figuring it out as we go. 
but it's it's really nice to have conversations where there is experience behind it such as yourself so i have to ask you what brought on this book like what was that moment where you were like i'm gonna write this book and i'm gonna i'm gonna put this out there and and this is gonna be another form of service to to mankind and to community and i'm gonna i'm gonna share this with people yeah, I, so I've always been a bit of a, so I got called this the other day and I, I thought it was hilarious. I've always been kind of a word nerd. So I've, I've always, you know, even as a kid, I was a word nerd and I, I just love the different use of words and structuring sentences in a way that one word is more powerful than the others or, or what word could I use in that sentence that would change and alter it, transform the sentence to be even different. And it could be the same meaning, but just a different use of a, of a, of a different word with the same meaning would it transform the sentence because I was like that. Uh, and, and like you said, I wasn't, I'm, trust me, I'm not perfect at all. I still say the wrong things all the time. But like you said, I learned some, from some really good mentors that the best thing I can do to model is to take a step back, apologize for what I said, because not only am, am I fixing the path with the person, but I'm teaching them that it's okay to make a mistake and apologize and fix it. And so we're always wanting our children to apologize. My wife taught me this. I always want my kids to apologize, but I need to know why they're apologizing. They need to know why they're apologizing and what they're apologizing for. And if we're not modeling it as adults, then they'll never figure out that process. But anyway, I've always been that word nerd. And so I did the, the TEDx on the power of coaches words. So I knew, I know now as a coach that words have power. They're like code, they're like software. Like, so we've got our athletes and we can get them as physically fit and as skillful as possible. But if we are not helping craft how they how their self-talk is and we're not helping craft how their brain is processing, then they could break down and they could choke in those moments of high stress. We see the choke mechanism. The choke mechanism is because there might be an error in the software. The software's not quite written well. So as a coach, what kind of software am I writing on my, the, my children that I'm working with, my athletes? I got that piece. So, and I got, I understood that, that long-term echoes impact. Well, I started working in that realm of, okay, so how do we craft conversations with people to help build them up, encourage them? And uh, the Frederick Douglass idea of it's better to build strong children, right? And I got into this realm of talking about warriors versus winners. And I, I did a few, I had a workshop out. It was one of my most requested workshops. I would do talks on it. The concept that we're building this generation where all they care about is winning, but they've lost the values in competing. They've forgotten what it means to be a, an amazing competitor, a, a, you know, quote unquote, warrior rather than just be a winner. And there's two very different and I, value system associated with that. And Warriors Not Winners was based on five psychological constructs. How are we setting up the locus of control? How are we setting up their motivation, intrinsic versus extrinsic? How are we setting up the competitive behaviors? Those, so those are three of the concepts that were in there. And I branched off of that and started talking to people, started doing a little mini workshop on how do we talk to people in a way that we encourage those values to be used. So I, I called it warrior brains. Like, hey, instead of saying this, use this phrase and you're going to build those warriors, not winners more often. And so I created this really cool presentation that talked about the warrior brains. Like if you're going to say this, that activates the visionary of the brain. And if you're going to, you know, if for instance, if you're going to talk with your athletes from a place of love, then you're quieting the amygdala of the brain. And, and, and uh, so I, <laughs> I took creative liberty because there's really only two places that speech and hearing actually are processed in the brain. But I made it seem like different parts, different words would activate different sections of the brains, which means we're, we're activating the entire brain of our athlete and we're imprinting on them these values, right? And so I'm working on the workshop and uh, my son comes in and he sits down and we're talking and he's asking me about it. I said, well, you know, for instance, instead of can't say yet, and for instance, and I was giving him some examples and he says, that's really cool, dad. He says, you know, you really like talking about that. You know, was what my TEDx was, he was like 13 at the time and he says you should just write a book about this like you're you love words and and you're always trying to find the perfect word for the moment 
you should write a book. And I thought, I, I do want to write a book. I've always, I, I mean, I had one in the making, I'd been working on and everything, but this was like a moment where this made so much more sense than any other book I'd thought about was the idea of just taking words and breaking them down and writing about them because that's, I'm a word nerd. And I understand this is, this at this point was about, was a little bit less than 30 years of, of coaching, plus all the other experiences, all my mentors and everything wrapped into this. This book wasn't an overnight, oh, I'm just going to make this up. It was all of this experience I was going to dump into this one book. And so I mapped out what I found were peril words and power words. Certain words cause peril in, in performance situations. Certain words are powerful and actually can inhibit peak performance. And so I, I, I broke the book into those chapters and I, I, you know, I mapped them all out. And I said to my son, the challenge was I was going to write the book in a month. So I get all the chapters and get all the research done. And I made a deal with myself that I would, it was forcing me to write is what I was doing. I was, I was reading Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird and I'd read some Tim Ferriss stuff and, and they were all talking about, you know, set aside time to write every day. And so I was going to use that time to write the book. So I ended up writing because of short chapters about a chapter a day. I got the book done in a month, roughly. And then it sat on my shelf for five years. Like, oh my gosh, I just poured my heart and soul into this book. I can't share this with the world. Are, are you kidding me? I'm like peeling back the layers of the onion. You'll see right to the core of who I am. That's that's scary. And what if I'm wrong? What what if the stuff I put in this book is wrong? What if my experiences for the last 20 years about this particular word are wrong? So it sat for five years. When it finally got picked up, long story longer, I go to final manuscript. I get the final edit. I'm in, turning the book into the publisher. And this is like the the go email. I send, They said, you know, once, you, once you're done making these edits that we've requested, there will be no more edits. We'll go to print, send us an email with the final manuscript and say, go to print. So I send that go to print email. The day I send that, I get a Facebook memory that says that is, so it's September 2nd, 2022. I get a Facebook memory that says September 2nd, 2017. And it's a picture of me with somebody else's book. And I said, I just wrote 30,000 some odd words in a book. I'm going to take a break and read somebody else's book for once. It was five years to the day that I finished my book that it finally got published. Wow. And so yeah, so it feels like, and I, I said that somebody said, I'm like, you only wrote it in a month. Yes, but it was 30 years written in a month. That's pretty dope though. That's <laughs> it. I'm writing a book about my life. I'm still I'm still in the outline. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's the most important part. You you prep more than you you, you execute, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm still in pre-pro, man. <laughs> it's like every time I add like a, another chapter and I start branching out, I'm like, ooh. It, yeah. That I the peeling back the the layers, it's yeah, it's deep, but I'll be, well, that's I'll be happy with the when book. it's done. <laughs> I'm with you. That's the problem with writing a book is, is you have so, your life is so rich and deep and broad that it's so hard to put it in a book. Even with this, with the words, I had to finally even pare it down and say, these are the whatever 16 words that are going to make it in the book. There's so many more. I've got more books now because I know there's words out of that. People pointed out, they said, you didn't talk about such and such. Oh man. But if I'd taken all that time to like map out every word, I'd never gotten the book done. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's that's really cool. So I would like to ask you, because you said some things about the way we hear, the way we process and all these different things. That leads me to asking you how does selective hearing apply to this? And I like you kind of already, you know, said some things, but I would like you to, I guess, like step back and just take some time to like really explain it from your point of view to the audience. I always ask this question. It's my favorite question to ask because everyone always has like a different a different answer and they view things from, you know, I guess different points of view, but it all, no matter what the explanation, they all end up tying and weaving into one another in some way. So for you, how does selective hearing apply to this 
Okay, so selective hearing, like we talked about earlier, is we we can't we can't we don't know which words somebody's going to choose to remember from a conversation. So we have to put into that conversation intentionally the words what we really want that we mean. Uh, selective hearing is that as a person listening to a conversation, I'm choosing to hear out of that conversation what I want to hear from it, and usually that's because I'm coming to that conversation with experiences or in the environment is setting me up to hear certain words. So for instance, in a conversation where it is heated and I'm arguing with somebody, I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm wanting to be angry at the person, I'm going to choose those words that make me continue to be angry. If I'm wanting to be negative, I'm going to choose those words that make me want to continue to be negative. And so uh, I started to figure out that the way I positioned myself in a conversation, the way I presented myself again, like if I'm the big, huge guy yelling words down to children, then they're going to take away some negativity from it. But if I'm getting down and I'm face to face and I'm calm and I'm quiet and maybe I'm happy and joyful with the kids when I'm talking to them, then that's what they're going to take away from the conversation is going to look for those words of joy. So selective hearing turned from not just how I choose to hear people, but how I choose to set them up to hear what I say can be the biggest difference in the world. And one lesson I got from a mentor teacher of mine was uh, she said in the classroom, she said, you never yell at the kids because it's just yelling, it's white noise. And she said, you set them up for those negative situations because you're creating the negativity with your yelling. And she said, I can be stern with them and I can be demanding with them. She says, but I'll tell you what, the most powerful thing I ever saw from a teacher quieting a classroom is she said, I had a former pro football player and I was mentoring him. He was my student teacher. And she said he was this big, huge mountain of a guy, just massive, imposing to these children in the classroom because we were working with first graders. And she said, but when he wanted to get their attention, when they were too rowdy, instead of yelling, he would lower his voice and make it quieter. And every single child in the classroom would hush up and lean in because they wanted to hear what the really big man had to say. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, so... Uh, you know, it's not, again, you're not, it's not exact words, but just lowering my voice and speaking that way meant that I set the environment for everybody to want to actually hear what I said next. And so again, I could shape their hearing based on how I interacted with them. And that meant that, and I said it in my TEDx, that meant that from a selective hearing point of view, if I wanted an entire group of children to take away one very powerful word at practice, let's say that word was uh, you know, seek joy, or the phrase was seek joy, that I wanted to understand that sports is about seeking joy. Let the results go, let the bad games go, let everything else go and think about just, are you having fun? Are you seeking joy? Because if you're seeking joy, you're gonna do those things that, that matter most in the game. Well, if I wanted every kid at practice to hear that word, then I would be talking to them like this and then I go, okay, here's my takeaway from today. Seek joy. Those are the words they're gonna remember. Like I helped them select their hearing based on how I interacted with them. All right, everybody, did you hear that? Stop yelling. No, <laughs> I, <laughs> I swear. No, I, um, I, I have different tones with my kids, different looks, different approaches. So yeah, I definitely, I get that. My husband's more, I, I feel like I have to like call him to the sidelines more. He's, he's not as patient as me. And I'd be like, Hey, you know, go say, sorry. Don't yell. And he's like, I told him a hundred times. I'm like, okay. And you're going to tell them a hundred times tomorrow. So you're only stressing yourself out. That's like, that. it's like always, you know, like these sidelines where I got to pull him off to the side. Like, you're going to say it a hundred times tomorrow and a hundred times the next day, the next day, they're two and four. I'm like, just, you know, take a deep breath, man, and go back in there and do it again. <laughs> and then he'll, he'll come out. And I even noticed with doing that with him, he'll, he'll go in there. He'll be like, I'm sorry, buddy. 
And he's like, that's not your fault. Daddy's just frustrated and that's not okay. And then like, you'll see them change. Like, okay, cool. And they're back doing exactly what they were doing before. <laughs> they're cool though. They're really cool. Like crazy kids. Well, so it, it, I'll tell you this though. <laughs> My wife is so good at pulling me aside and going, hey, come on, you're the communicator. You're the word guy. Did you really mean to say it that way with your kids? Because that's the problem is the ones we love the most. We tend to be the loosest with and how we speak and react or act around them because we trust them. <laughs> so she's always having to remind me, are you sure you meant it that way? <laughs> <laughs> That's us. I'm like, uh, he's like, I told him a hundred times. I'm like, I, he's like, they don't do that to you. I'm like, no, you just come in. Like when you come in from work, you see me on number 98 and you see him sitting down. And I'm like, but there was, there was 97 times before you walked <laughs> through that door where I'm like, don't flip off the couch. Don't, you know, like, uh, don't throw your brother down again. Like, oh my gosh, we have this thing. Uh, where I say, what are nice hands? So I gave my kids a list of positive things to do with their body. Nice hands, nice feet. What are nice hands? And now they go like, so if, if my older son pushes the, my younger son down, I'll say, hey, and instead of I've learned with him, don't hit doesn't work. So I say, hey, what are nice hands? He'll stop. And I'm like, what are nice hands? And he'll go through clapping, snapping, thumbs up, thumbs down fist bump you know and I'm like were those nice hands no okay well we only use nice hands and then he'll say sorry or if he kicks I'm like what are nice feet and he'll jumping okay stomping running walking were those nice feet no I was like okay let's remember to use our nice feet so that was something that because I kept saying don't hit your brother don't hit your brother don't hit your brother and it's they're boys. It's WWE around here all the time. Like, don't hit your brother. Doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I had to redirect that energy <laughs> because if oh, not, yeah. it was just going to be, it's, it's still Monday night raw, but at least I can like jump in there and intercept <laughs> their thought patterns for a second. But yeah, it's, <laughs> I love it. That's one of the chapters in the book is don't, and you're, you're spot on. I, I, so Jane Nelson with positive discipline, I was, she was doing a workshop and I went to it and it, it was either her or one of the clinicians in the workshop was talking about the word don't and they pointed out I'd never thought of this and I was this was in my 40s so I, I'd had I'd had quite a you know few years of, of learning you'd think I'd figured it out that children can't visualize don't so she was explaining I was always saying well you know don't we'll filter it will this will that you know as adults if you you know the brain focuses on the other word not on the word don't and she said well take a step back for young children if you're telling them don't run they can't visualize what don't means they just hear run <laughs> And I never thought of it. So all the times I was telling kids, like, you know, don't hit your brother. Well, all I'm saying is hit your brother because their brain can't visualize what, what's don't. Is it a circle with a line through it? What, what do you mean by don't? <laughs> yeah. If it, yeah, for real. Yeah. Don't hit your brother and then smack. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you figured it out. Wait, I had to have somebody point it out to me. <laughs> I actually, because I follow like a lot of uh, parenting coaches and things like that. And I'm I'm really into like reading parenting books because I always heard like, there's no book on parenting. I'm like, I grew up and I'm like, no, there's a bunch of books on parenting and I need to read them. <laughs> May not agree with all of them, but like you can take a nugget from here, a nugget from there and put them all together and find your rhythm and f figure out what's gonna work for your kids and things like that. And there's a bunch of books. So I I like to read them. I can't wait to read your book. I have, I've had so many guests 
with books where I actually have a summer reading list now because I didn't have one. <laughs> I had one book going into the year, like, oh, I'm really going to read this book. Everyone kept recommending. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read it. The The Secret. I bought it. And yeah. It's like in my desk drawer. I haven't even opened it yet. Like, I think I, well, I may have opened it and read like page one and then put it back. So yeah. I was like, <laughs> once I wrap this season and I go into the summer with the kids, they'll have their summer books and I'll have my summer books. I have your book. I have a book from last week and I have another book that was just sent to me. So it's like, I'm going to have like some really good books to read and some really good advice to add to my list of things that I do as a parent, because parents, we, we are like coaches. So in this, our household, this is, these are our teammates. So we want to win as a team. So I think your book, even though you, you're speaking from a coach and from, you know, your life and your career, you're still, you know, your dad, your husband, you know, you have a team at home, you had a team on the field. So parents, teachers, all my listeners, you know, other coaches out there, please make sure that you read the Spartan mindset and I'm going to allow coach Reed to tell you where you can get the book and I'm going to let him share all of his contact information, social handles, website with you. And I want you to always remember that everything that coach Reed is going to share with you right now will also be listed on my website and in the bio for this episode. So coach Reed, where can everyone find you? Where can they read your book? Thank you. Thank you for talking about the book. Um, so it's called The Spartan Mindset. That's what the cover looks like if you see it on Amazon. I love how they, I love the colors they used and the helmet. Uh, you can find it on any of your favorite retailers. So Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Books A Million, Booktopia, Bookshop, you you name it, Target. Even I saw it at Target the other day. It's available now pre-order. It doesn't, the book doesn't come out until April 18th. It is available pre-order now. I am, if you go to coach, I'm sorry, if you go to fullspartan.com, F-U-L-L spartan.com, I've got a pre-order thing going right now that if you pre-order the book and you let me know about it with a receipt number, you know, you preview bought the book, I've got some cool bonuses happening for people. So I'm going to do a, an audio book study of the book and, I'll, and they'll get access to that and the free webinar, things like that. So some things I'm attaching to the book for people that pre-order. Because I noticed that pre-orders actually started and I, I noticed my numbers on Amazon were bumping. So I know people are pre-ordering, but nobody's gone to my website to sign up and tell me they've pre-ordered, which I'd, I'd love. I'd love to know who's buying the book. Um, and like I said, you can find it at any of your major retailers. Uh, it is 30 years of my mentors and and other coaches and and friends and and family and my own experiences and educators pouring into me that I then poured into this book. So it's my heart and soul on, on a page and it's not perfect, but uh, um, I would love to hear feedback. If you do read it, let me know how, what you think. And as always, I close the show on a positive word. So what would you say to the audience before we leave today to leave them feeling inspired and encouraged? Inspired and encouraged. Well, we were talking about negative self-talk and we're talking about selective hearing. We don't, we can't always control what people say to us but we can control how we react to it, how we respond to it, how we choose to take what they say and make better in our lives. So my, my inspiring positive word is we have control of our self-talk. We can choose how we speak to ourselves and we can choose what we take away from conversations to lend to our voice. And so my, my positive word is, hey, just choose to always take the positive and, uh, and remember that no matter what somebody says to you, that the voice that is in your head is the one that's going to speak the loudest at most times. So make sure that voice 
is using positive language. Well, thank you for joining me today. And this was an amazing conversation. I hope that all of you out there go read the book. And I will be back next week with a brand new topic and a new guest. So until next week, everyone, this is Selective Hearing.